I'm Jason Klom, and this is the Comedy on Vinyl podcast. The year is 1973. The album, The Monty Python Matching Tie and Handkerchief, the group, Monty Python, and my guest is Terrence Bowman. Thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. So people might know you from The Vestibules, for formerly Radio Free Vestibule, which I think is how I must have heard you first, because I know I, I heard of you first through that Dr. Demento compilation years ago. Oh, yeah, yeah, probably. Uh, the Bulbous Buffon sketch uh, uh, was played very heavily on Dr. Demento yeah. uh, in the 90s. Yeah. Matter of fact, I think it was his most requested spoken word piece ever. That's amazing. Maybe somebody's broken that record since the mm-hmm. 90s. I don't know, but at the time it was. Do you, uh, what was, uh, what was Dr. Demento's presence in Canada? I, I really don't know. Um, he, he was, his syndication back then was huge. It was all over the place. He, um, he was on several stations in Canada. Uh, oddly, not in in Montreal, which is the city I live in, uh, mm-hmm. which is where I live then, where I live now. Um, but uh, <clears throat> we certainly knew who he was, and uh, we'd heard, heard the show before. Um, anytime we were in Toronto doing shows there, we'd constantly hear him. Um, and when we were out in L.A., we, um, we got to meet him and actually be on his show live. Uh, so that was fun. That's amazing. Gosh, that's super yeah. fun. Um, I'm realizing I don't know a ton about your background, again, other than as part of a sketch group. That is that is the way it often is. You know, I'll interview people who are parts of a group, and then you're like, oh, this is this is an entire person I'm speaking with. So I want to know a little bit more about your background and then how, how the group came together and why sketch is so important that it's still a group. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Well, um, I did bring all of me tonight to good. the interview. So good. thank you so much. Uh, <laughs> there's that. Um, yeah, well, we got together. Uh, we were doing live comedy here in Montreal, and uh, we got together because basically, well, first of all, live audiences were really tough. They didn't always laugh at everything, and that okay. was hard for us. Um, and then. Uh, the college radio station McGill, uh, which is a, a university people may have heard of, uh, got their own radio license at the time, and we just leapt at the idea of uh, getting a radio show. Now, this was, of course, way before the days of internet and podcasts and YouTube sure. and all that stuff. Because that's we would have leapt on that if had it been there at the time, right? But yeah, so we started out there, and then we uh, we started selling stuff to the CBC, which is a big television and radio network in Canada, and uh, we just kept going from there. That's crazy. So how much of the early stuff you did together, I mean, now, was it strict sketch, or was there any improv? Uh, no, it was strictly sketch. Always, always, always sketch. Um, I did do, I've done a lot of improv, but that's outside of the vestibules Mm -hmm. um but as far as we go yeah it was everything was very very heavily scripted and rehearsed and planned out and uh we wouldn't have it any other way is there anything from the radio days that is i mean that appeared on albums or that you 
maybe have lost that those are all always the stories that make me cringe but i'm always curious to know um no we're fortunately we're really anal so uh we got everything um we got like some of our like yeah uh, we have our earliest uh, shows on uh, from Radio McGill, which are incredibly primitive things when you listen to them today. Uh, we still have them. As a matter of fact, coming up uh, next month, November 26th, will mark the 30th anniversary of the airing of the first Vestibule show. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Are you going to be doing anything with that old material? I mean, do people get to hear this stuff? Yeah, yeah. Actually, uh, on vestibules.com, we have downloads where you can get, I think, a lot of it. Not Oh, yeah, not I saw you do have so much stuff there, yeah. Yeah, yeah. A lot of it's our very early radio stuff. And on uh, November 26th, my plan is to get uh, a recording, which I still have somewhere, of the very first show. And I'm going to put it up on YouTube uh, at 7.45 p.m., uh, Eastern time because that will have been the time that we aired. I love it. That's so good. Yeah. I, I love, I, you know, honestly, uh, it would take too much to explain why, but I mean, I've got my own comedy group, sort of, and th- I love when people are that attached to their own stuff and like like their own work that much, you know, especially like going back that far. Some people don't always, they kind of dismiss the old work uh, rather than yeah. kind of appreciate where they've come from and, and, and gone to. We, we don't dismiss it. We cringe at it at mm-hmm. times. It's, of it course. It's so, so primordial. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I, I definitely still have a soft spot for it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but that's part of it. I mean, I, I, the, the cringing is, is yeah. part of the enjoy, enjoyment for me looking back yeah. on my old garbage. Um, uh, man, that's so much fun. I, I, again, like I said, I, I love that there's so much, and I will just tell people now who don't normally do the plugs at the beginning, we go to the vestibules.com. There's so much stuff up there. Um, yeah, yeah. A lot of that early primitive stuff, mm-hmm. uh, you can get it. That's so good. Um, let's, all right, let's skip back to Monty Python. I... You know, the American experience tends to be, uh, oh, Monty Python, we discovered it in the early to mid-70s because it was on PBS here. I don't know I don't know how early it came to Canada. I'm assuming earlier. I'm assuming the nerds started there a little bit earlier than we did, but I don't know. Maybe you can give me a, a picture of that. Uh, well, I certainly know a lot about the history of nerd culture in Canada, I can tell you that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, well, w- one of the great things about Canada is we get um, we get American media and British media at the same time. Mm-hmm. So we we were getting TV from from both sides. So we actually got um, Monty Python almost at the same time as it was airing on the BBC originally. Amazing. So late '60s into the early '70s. Matter of fact, Paul Perry, who uh, who's in the vestibules, uh, actually saw uh, Python live. They toured across Canada when the show was still running. Oh my God! It's been like 1970, roughly, something like that. Actually, saw them live uh, at a venue called Plaste Plastes Art or Plasti Arts, as George Carlin used to call it, <laughs> uh, <laughs> here in Montreal. That's phenomenal. See, that that's, yeah, that's not a thing that I think you're going to hear a lot from an American. I'm going to, I'm not going to speak for everybody, but it, there, there is a bonus to that cultural exchange that, that is just good due to your inevitable connection. Um, oh yeah. 
That's so good. And we got is... Doctor Who way earlier too. Oh, so I see. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> yeah. yeah, of course you did. Yeah, again, like I said, I actually I think we talked about um Hitchhiker's Guide a couple weeks ago and you know, my guest was an American and so same story as with Python. Like we seem to just get this huge influx of all the English stuff at once. And yeah. And to have it roll out at about the same time uh, you know it was being released, that's uh it does explain the Canadian influence on comedy even more. Yeah, we get we get the best of both worlds, mm -hmm. and then then we're, we are by nature sponges. <laughs> None of that. Yeah, I I mean I, that's I mean this we've talked about it a lot uh, that uh, you know without Canadian comedy, it's interesting to hear you talk about the you know the the uh, again having the English and the American at the same time. Um, just without Canadian comedy, there would be no American comedy as we know it of the 70s and 80s. And I wonder if if that cultural exchange has anything to do with it or if it's just the fact that Canadian comedy is unique. What Do you have a thought on that or am I just up my own butt uh, about that? Uh, no, no, no. I, nobody, Nobody's up their own butt about Canadian stuff. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm just not used to it. No, it's very rare that, that I run into Americans who know as much about us. Um but uh, what I would say is this. Yeah, I think it's because we have sort of an outsider's kind of view of it. Mm -hmm. Like we get we're watching American culture and we're watching jokes about the president, but it's not our president, you know. Sure. Yeah. And so there's that kind of thing. Lucky, and and there's lucky. also, you know, and British stuff, it's the same thing. We're getting jokes about the Queen and the, the, the mail service and all that stuff that Python used to love to make jokes about. And yeah. we don't really know what it is. We we know what it is from the way they describe it. The same way we know about the US from the way it's described to us on American TV. Mm -hmm. Uh, so yeah, we kind of see it as outsiders and I think maybe that gives us an advantage in terms of satire and parody yeah. we, with different eyes. Yeah. It's a different level of, or different type of irreverence that is huge. I mean, it's so important. I mean, again, I'll just talk about a little bit more about Americans being up their own butts. I think maybe without that Canadian influence, it would be harder to make fun of ourselves. I could be wrong, but that does feel like that's part of the influence. Yeah, absolutely. There are a number of Americans who are very good at making fun of America. To be sure, <laughs> well, to be sure. Any Canadian There's quite a few, but uh, George Carlin comes to mind. I mean, mm -hmm. I think he was the, the master of that. Um, but uh, yeah, it does. It certainly does add to the landscape. It adds to the the richness of the satire. Yeah. So when you first, uh, what's your first memory of Monty Python uh, or your first experience that you know of? I remember uh, I was watching them and they used to air and now I'm probably I'm a little honestly I'm, I'm I'm an older guy but I'm a little too young to have seen Python when it aired sure um, they used to run them on the CBC in Canada kind of late at night mm -hmm. and I remember waking up falling asleep on the couch watching TV and waking up to one of Terry Gilliam's animation pieces. Mm. I didn't know it was that at the time. Right. And my first thought was, is this on TV or am I dreaming? <laughs> because those things are just so surreal and so bizarre. Oh, that's amazing. And it was the one where, uh, I remember it well, it was the one where there's a, the animation is, there's a guy, 
pulls a gun on another guy, comes out of an alley and pulls a gun and says, put your hands up. And then the guy puts two hands up and then he puts two more hands up. And then and finally he's got like eight arms and then he just crushes the mugger with all of his eight arms. You probably remember that. And that was the one I was like, I, whoa. Did I? And then I thought that there's almost too much logic to that for it to be a dream. Right. So <laughs> this is probably real. Yeah. And then I started watching it from there. And uh, soon all of my managed to make contact with all of my geeky friends about it. And, and we were following it uh, as much as we possibly could because they ran it. At, when they ran it in reruns in Canada, they ran it really weird times. It was on like 1130 Friday nights and then like 830 a.m. Sunday mornings. It was very wow. it was a challenge to keep up with. So. And we did. That's insane. I, I yeah. love that so much. So how how deep then into your love of Python and appreciating of Python did this particular album come in? Was this the first Python album you had or listened to? Or is it just uh, one that you love particularly? It's one that I really loved and have come back to a lot over mm -hmm. the years. Um, I, I think a friend of mine had one of the other. I think there's an earlier one before that. Um yeah, this is their to. fourth and, album. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's an earlier one. And and I remember being amazed because I just figured, oh, they're, it's sketches from the show that they've just put on album. Right, right. And it's entirely, I mean, there is a little bit of some sketches from the show, but it's sure. almost all new material and written. And they, you know, written especially for the medium. They clearly understand the medium of audio comedy, of just audio comedy. Yeah. Like, like who the, the people who are working on that them and their producers and when we started doing stuff on on cbc radio i was i was like let's track down who produced those monty python albums yeah. let's track them down fly them over let's get them to it couldn't couldn't happen <laughs> uh -huh. of course but uh that was my first thought was let's get them to do this because Whoever produced those albums understands, I'm assuming they worked in radio at some point, understands right. radio comedy innately. I can tell you, so I don't know how much of the deep dive you've done into the production of those albums since, but um, Andre Jackman, who's the primary producer on all the albums. Yes, yeah. He, when mean, he started, he was 17 when he started on these albums. That's the thing wow. that blows my mind. Doing it in a shed in his backyard. <laughs> Wow, with that you don't hear. <laughs> right, yeah, no, people don't talk about it. Uh, I, I will, I will to anybody listening, I not to pimp my own thing, but it was a lot of fun. He did do the podcast uh, like a year and a half or so ago. Oh, cool. And it was just, I mean, I'm just, my jaw was on the floor the whole time. Uh, and when I managed to pick it up, up, I did get a few good questions in. But like, just, I didn't know that he was 17 when he had started work. So, you know, by the time this one comes around, he's still only in his early 20s. It hurts yeah. my brain. Yeah, yeah. And, and he was outside of the show, too. I mean, he didn't yeah. work on the TV show. He just came to the albums, as I understand it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. and to hear him talk about, oh, yeah, there's some, you know, some scraps sitting around somewhere of lines we didn't use in the in the Life of Brian song. And I'm like, are you, what do you mean scraps sitting around? Where are they and how do we hear them? Because that's the <laughs> yeah. stuff. Yeah. Oh, do you? OK, so yeah. uh, what did you know about this album coming in? Uh, for those who don't well, know, it's got the three tracks or the three. That's uh, what attracted me to it. OK, <laughs> when I heard that it's got three sides uh -huh. and it's actually only one out record, mm -hmm. except it's got three sides because of the grooves. And that was what really attracted me to it. And I remember like 
sitting at home playing it, and maybe a lot of people listen to it did this, where you, you'd put the needle down, and it's like, oh, no, it started that side again. Then you put it down again. Oh, no, it started that side again. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, and you just keep playing with it until it played the side that you wanted. Yeah. I love that there's yeah. there are two two experiences you can have with it, and they're I think they're both equally valid and equally great. One is you can be surprised and pissed off and confused because you didn't know it was happening. The other is you're totally in on the joke, and that's also a delight because yeah. all you get to do is fantasize about how pissed off those other poor suckers were, and I think that's kind of great. Yeah, that wasn't me because I remember seeing the sticker. They had a sticker on it when I bought it. And it said three sides, and it had some kind of joke to that wow. effect. I don't really remember what it is, but so I knew going in. That's amazing. Um, I didn't yeah. even know and that. I was remember a thing. I used to play it on my college radio show. Uh, I used to play because I used to love to play the song where they're talking about medieval agrarian practices, and it's all done in like early seventies rock music. Uh-huh. And the and the the, <laughs> the historian sounds like. He's like just some musician who's possibly high or something. He's going, yeah, they would do boon work, you know. <laughs> and I would love to play that on my college radio show. And it always took a few tries to cue it up so that it would hit the right groove. Because oh that was God. one of the tracks. You had to be in the right groove That's to, uh, to get it to play. <laughs> So I'm sorry, and I, I forget. So we go back. So your college radio show? Did you you had a college radio show just for sketches? Pardon me, just a regular show first, and then it went into yeah. This was before vestibules. Yeah, mm-hmm. I I was just like I was just like a DJ, and and it was you know you play whatever you want kind of thing. So I'd be playing like you know uh, I'd be playing like Gang of Four and all these alternative early '80s alternative um, bands, you know. Einstrack and Newbotten, and I'm not even sure. I couldn't even pronounce them then. Um, <laughs> and those kind of things. And then I'd, I'd throw in, like, Python, and I'd throw in, you know, some other weird thing. I'd throw in uh, that song that, that came with a Mad Magazine that had a vinyl. Yes. Oh, my God. Was it It's a Gas, I, or was it one of the other ones? It was, it was Making Out. Oh, that one. one. Yeah, there we go. I still, you yeah. know, I, I keep, everybody talks about it, and I have never heard it. And that's really? my fault. Got it. It's got to be on YouTube or something. I, I used to play that like in between, you know, like the clash. And, <laughs> you know, and this was the clash before they really broke out mainstream. And that's yeah, so, good. so, yeah, that's phenomenal. So uh, was this an album then that you was this all to yourself or did you share this with friends or family? Like what was the experience in listening to this? This one was largely to myself. Um, I would sometimes play it for friends, but this, it was mostly my experience. And and it's actually been one that I that I go back to a lot. Um, like I said, I played it on my college radio show, and every once in a while, I'll hear it again. Um, I actually listened to it again this morning in preparation for this, so that it would all be fresh in my mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I I come back to it from time to time, and. Um, one thing I was noticing this morning is that the writing is just so good. Yeah. It's yeah. ridiculously tight. I I actually I've yeah. been, I've been given shit for this uh before when they do repeat sketches from the show, I actually like the album versions better than the TV show. Much as I love the show and I I'm a big nerd for my Monty Python, but I honestly like the album versions better. Yeah, you, me too and and you can appreciate it more and those and and it's almost as if a lot of those sketches 
are were written with the idea that there are going to be people at home playing these over and over and over again. You're going to be having multiple listens because sure. it it feels like it was produced and written with that in mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And in just the the kind of the the sound depth in almost everything, it, they you know obviously you get to play with stereo, which was not a thing on TV yet. That's actually that's yeah. huge. That's something we've never even talked about before because. We, we frequently mention, hey, no VCR, so of course, yeah, they had records, but the fact that you had the opportunity for stereo sound in comedy is massive. Yeah. We used to, uh, we used to hold our, our – we used to have tape decks with mics, and we'd hold it up to the TV speakers to record shows. Mm -hmm. That's what I, I used to do. Um, and I did it with the Python shows. I had like seven episodes of Mission Impossible, just the audio <laughs> It's very bizarre, but and we would listen to it over and over again because there was there weren't VCRs, but yeah. the demand for the VCR was totally there. Mm -hmm. Just filling it any way we could. Of course, yeah. Is that do you do you think? And this is getting deep into it, but do you think it was as much a comfort thing as it was an entertainment thing? Like, I really love the show, or was it really nice to just have that thing that you knew you could relax to while you listened? Yeah, I think it was that. I think it was also, you know, some of that stuff was just so great that you wanted to just relive it again and again. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. it's and it, it's a thing with kids, too. I mean, I was kind of young at the time, you know. Sure. Uh, yeah. And, you know, I'm talking like I was eight, nine years old and and repetition is huge at that age. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, I think it's about that. I think it's about you wanted to have comfort for that because. Because you had no control over what you could watch when it was you were in the room when the thing broadcast or you weren't. Yeah, I think <laughs> that that's that. kind of what created uh, what we know as nerd culture. Like just first of all, this huge desire to have everything accessible and then just reaching out to the depths of your knowledge of technology, which at the time and I did that too, recording shit off a of TV with your with your cassette recorder. And yeah. just like, how can I, I figure this out? How can I be, how can I have it all in, in front of me and accessible? And, uh, yeah, I, I love, I love hearing stories about how people kind of, uh, found a way around the natural limitations or seeming natural limitations of technology at the time. And it does a lot goes back to this. Oh yeah. We, we invented, I actually invented, I think what was the first improv game without realizing what it was. Because we used to love Mission Impossible so much. And, you know, they'd have those opening credits where they'd have all the clips from the show, right? Mm -hmm. So we had a recording that we made off TV of the theme song. And then we would act out all these different fight scenes and stuff like that to it. And we just come up with that. I <laughs> and then love we try it. and come up with an episode where all that stuff that we just did fit uh, in, uh. which is like the basis of an improv game really Absolutely. i didn't think didn't know that at the time i didn't wasn't doing improv yet but right that's yeah. amazing i love that shit that again yeah. that's my favorite stuff to do as a kid i uh man i i like to yeah. that there's so many comedian stories that are again very similar was like i didn't have anything necessarily to entertain me enough or like this thing entertained me so much i wanted to be a part of it so i kind of made that happen for myself yeah and it wasn't like you know today my my friends who have kids they're they're like they're driving them to soccer practice and then they're going to the museum and then they've got their art group and then they like, mm -hmm. it's like we didn't have you know it was tv that's it mm. you know was there what was the, what was the value if any placed on comedy in your family um not that much yeah 
that's it. Yeah, that was really my thing. Uh, my brother introduced me to George Carlin. I get my older brother. Awesome. Um, introduced me to George Carlin. That much I gotta give. Gotta give you. Um, but um, other other than that, and it was something like, and and even that was like a don't tell mom and dad this. Sure. Letting you listen to this guy, right? <laughs> so uh, yeah. So but other than that, no, it wasn't really something that was. It was really my thing. Um, and you probably hear this from a lot of comics. It's, it's, uh, something, you know, it was as the youngest kid, which a lot of comedians are the youngest kid. Uh, it was my own unique way of getting attention because there was no other way to do it. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, but just specifically from acting out, is that, did you just acting out or coming up with my own stuff? Um, at that time, other people's material tended to be stronger than mine. Uh (laughs) I would shamelessly steal from my favorites, but, you know, everybody starts somewhere, right? Yeah, well, that's also the same. I love that story, too. Everybody's got either a a really fantastic, fun story or a fun and super embarrassing story about how they kind of stole their first material, and I I love those stories. Yeah, yeah. We did a... Um... At my uh, junior high school variety show, we did, and nobody knew this stuff, we did George Carlin's whole news thing <laughs> as if it was our own. Without, And one kid came up to me afterwards and said, that's from a George Carlin album, isn't it? I said, yes, yes, it is. <laughs> but that was the... <laughs> and everyone just assumed, we never said we wrote it, but everyone just assumed that we did. And I mean, and it killed too, because it was, you know, it's awesome material. <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, you know, it's it's like in your head though. It's logically it's sound because you know a band bands cover songs. So if you're a yeah. kid, what's wrong with covering somebody's comedy? It makes sense. Oh, absolutely. And it wasn't until I really got into doing comedy and and hanging out with other comedians and being in clubs and seeing shows and where I realized just how what a despicable act stealing material is truly considered sure. amongst comedians. Um, and, and, and yeah. And, and at that time I went, okay, I'm not mentioning the George Carlin thing when I was 13. Uh, you know, but, <laughs> yeah. That's so good. Uh, is, I mean, uh, what, uh, and we'll go back and forth here, but sure. what, what was the first kind of, touchstone for the group uh for the vestibules i mean was monty python i'm I'm, i can always assume it's one of them but you never know python was huge for me python was huge uh and i think for paul too um and the other big one was sctv sure sctv and monty python were like the cornerstones of our in really our huge influences um, and then and later when we started hearing his stuff in terms of audio humor, Stan Freeberg, who was oh, also yeah. a master of um, of audio comedy, really. Uh, matter of fact, we the, the first time we heard I, we didn't hear the Deo song bit until we were actually a group and uh, hearing that. I don't remember what context we heard it in. And we, uh, you know, where he does that thing with Deo and it's too loud and he has to walk out of the room and you're we must have done like <laughs> 10 sketches after that where we had little like <laughs> quiet funny walking sounds turning up and all <laughs> oh i love that that's fucking 
fantastic. Yeah, Stan Freeberg is one of those. He's actually a, a rare bird uh, in terms of comedy because he's a dude who who didn't start. He started from this place of, and I, you know, I've confirmed it with people who knew him. You know, genuine bitterness towards the thing he was making fun of. It was such sharp satire against something that was bringing so much joy to people. But his comedy's so good. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of his things that, that, that I, I really loved that he did, too, was um, he did a fair amount of, like, satire of advertising. Yeah. Commercials and stuff. And and I that was a thing that I think, you know, um, that I really liked. Uh, we, we used to do that in the vestibules, too. We would do, um, when we were doing CBC radio stuff, we would take uh, current popular commercial commercials that were running constantly, mostly Canadian ones. That mm-hmm. Nobody else would know. And we just, we'd come up with a bit on them. And, and, uh, we even had one person from one of the agencies that produced one of these commercials called us and wanted us for a, a copy of it so that they could study it. Wow. It's <laughs> part of their mark ongoing market research. Holy crap, um, that's amazing. But I love that stuff. Even when you're doing silly, goofy things with the commercials, even when it's just, you know, you're doing slapstick jokes with the commercials, I still think that's an incredibly important part of the dialogue because, you know, the advertisers are spending millions, billions of dollars on this stuff. And then three guys uh, in in their, you know, rundown apartment with <laughs> a tape recorder are taking the piss out of it, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. So... It's. I, I think that's an important part of the dialogue. If you're going to have advertising, you got to have people coming back at it. You know. Yeah, absolutely. I, I I've always admired uh, any, especially sketch groups. Sketch groups have. I don't know if the reputa- if it's necessarily a reputation, but there's sometimes a perception of sketch groups that it's um, just a new version of vaudeville. Maybe I think I feel like that's the perception. Where it, whereas. Uh, <laughs> maybe satire isn't always associated with in my head it has always been associated with sketch but in a lot of a lot of places it's just well this is something a bunch of college kids get together and do you know rather than people who continue to do it for the rest of their lives yeah it is something a lot of college students get together and do and absolutely many of them go on to you know write for saturday night live and write for hbo for sure you know so yeah it is yeah it is definitely no. I mean, look. I mean, Saturday Night Live to this day, they're still known for their political stuff. Uh, they're still known for their ad parodies, um, all of which are tend to be really on the nose in terms of hitting a zeitgeist and, sure. and making fun of where those ads are at. Uh, I want to go back a little bit. Uh, well, we'll go just go back to Monty Python. Uh, sure, specifically yes. to Matching Tie. Is yeah. there? Uh, do you have a favorite track on this or favorite tracks? Oh, yeah, absolutely my favorite track on this. And it's one of my favorite Python things ever. And I'm not really sure why this one stands out above all others. But for for me, just as a personal thing, is I was talking about it earlier, um, was the, the where they're doing the, the BBC show on medieval agriculture. <laughs> and for some reason, all of the... It's all described in song. <laughs> Songs written by the the amazing Neil Innes, who is another you know unsung hero of of Python for sure. Um, and it's I don't know what it is about that, and with where the 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 professors of medieval history all sound like they're like these you know washed out rock musician kind of types. And that was a time when I think you know I in the, in the early seventies. 
it, it wasn't as slick, you know. You get rock stars being interviewed now, and they've got all the answers, and they've got all the sound bites, and they, you know, they've been through a PR course or something. But back then, it, it was a lot like, you know, because you hear the guy in that sketch who's it, well, you know, they kind of do, um, you know, they do, um, and the interviewer has to come in. Uh-huh. <laughs> You know, has to come in and finish the guy's sentence because he's just so <laughs> unmedia friendly. I love that. And, so yeah, much. yeah. I for, I forgot about yeah. that bit. Honestly, uh, re-listening to it, like I said, we've only covered it once, maybe on the show before. Oh yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, I'd heard it once, so this is maybe the third time I've even had to listen to it. I uh, I think I grew up hearing more compilations than I did anything. Uh, but I'd completely forgotten about that one. And yeah, absolutely. Anything with anything where Neil Innes is involved, uh, I feel like people forget that he was there for so much of it. Yeah, I mean, the music, they really owe a lot musically to him, for sure. Yeah, I found out recently that he is responsible for the whistling hook in uh, Always Look on the Bright Side of Life. I did not know that. That's him. Yeah, eh? So I know the um, the songs in Bonnie Python and the Holy Grail are also him, and the Ruddles, of course. Sure. It's all him. Um, and those are some brilliant uh, Beatle parody songs. Mm-hmm. Was there... But yeah, and I'm Sorry, trying to see what else is there on the album. That The other thing, of course, it's from the show, but the Cheese Shop, because just because you can listen to it over and over again and appreciate all the little intricacies of the of the dialogue and the way it's written so and the incredible turns of phrase that, that only John Cleese can really do justice to in the delivery. Um, and, and obviously, you know, these were the days before Google, somebody did a great deal of research on just how many different types of cheeses <laughs> there are. I know. And how long is that track? I'm realizing I don't know, but it's, it just, it feels unending, but it's also so delightful. I don't want it to stop. Yeah, it's. I think it runs like six minutes or something like that, which is honestly from, you know, doing um, sketch comedy on radio and live and on TV. That's an eternity. Yeah. <laughs> six minutes is an eternity in sketch comedy. <laughs> really, like. That's so good. I, do you, I, it, it's making me think, okay, uh, there is it. There is a certain skill to being able to pull the comedy out of a list. It's some of my favorite comedy. I mean, it's something that Weird Al does all the time. Monty Python also does it all the time. It's yeah, it's a genre of sketch of, mm-hmm. and 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 also um, getting into the real technical detail of uh, of a particular field or something like that to the point where you know that you're they're talking about stuff that only people that know cheese inside out, for instance, would recognize all right. of these things. Um, yeah, that's, it's a genre of sketch is that sort of listing and going into an arcane amount of detail about something. Um, the onion is really good at that. Yeah. Yeah. I also love that, you know, when you'll, you read, I mean, there's plenty of histories on Monty Python. So there's, there's, they've talked about themselves, you know, to death at this point, but listening to them, uh, or reading about them talk about uh, just, you know, they might write a sketch that sounds incredibly worldly and well-read, and, you know, they'll, they'll be the first to admit that, no, I we've never we never read a book by this person, but, they you know, they knew it was a good reference, and you get shocked, but it's like, well, no, they also wrote a sketch about cheese, all of which I'm sure they hadn't necessarily eaten. It's almost the same, they treat it the same way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. Do you... <laughs> I want to know if and it, it there feel free if if there's no obvious history to this but 
bulbous bouffant is obviously the first thing I, I ever heard by you gentlemen. Where does Macadamia. it come from? <laughs> where does it, yes, where does it's it insane. Yeah, it was. Um, I remember the the inception of it kind of well, actually. Um, we were all in Breakfast Studios, which is where we recorded all our stuff, which is actually Bernard Denigier's apartment, by the way. Really? At the time. Yeah. <laughs> but we called it Breakfast Studios. Love it. Um, and we were there and we started doing this sketch. And I can't remember. It was... It started off as a we would kind of improvise sketches amongst ourselves and until we found something that worked and then would start writing it down, mm-hmm. which is I still in, in my book, I teach classes on sketch comedy. And, and I always tell my students, just start improvising because, yeah, it's the only way days, ideas are going to hit you anyway. So we started doing that. And it started off as a guy uh, at the meeting, a crazy guy at the bus stop. Which, you know, if anybody lives in a big city, this happens to you constantly, right? Sure. Um, And so we – and then from there – and I don't remember who it is. Somebody started riffing on – it wasn't me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It was either Paul or Bernard. It wasn't me. Started riffing on the weird words that the guy would say and then having somebody else coming back with the weird words – and then uh, I, I remember coming in with macadamia at one point, mm-hmm. uh, which is me, by the way. That uh, That's my big claim to fame, macadamia. <laughs> um, and then I think it was Bernard got this idea of starting to – of multi-tracking it and just putting in all these different words and stuff. And, and I remember thinking – are we we really going this far with that? Do you really <laughs> want to go that far with this? I, I might lose the audience on it. Um, but back then, we were producing uh, 15 minutes a week uh, for college radio. Oh, my. So, yeah, I know. And it was insane. And, you know, when we looked at that, oh, that runs three and a half minutes. Okay, it's in. Uh-huh. <laughs> it was one of those things. And uh, we put it on, and, and um, initially we weren't really so sure about it. Uh, one of our comedian, one of our stand-up comedian friends, listened to it, and he went, "Ah, oh, what are you doing, guys? What are you, you know, <laughs> that's so long. What are you doing? Where are the jokes? What's you know?" Um, and so we we weren't really sure. And then we started to get feedback on it from people who heard the show. People would call in after we did the shows, and then you know uh, we'd be playing it for friends and and. Eventually, it started to get this momentum going, and so we decided to re-record it for our CBC show, and um, and that's I think where it ended up on Doctor Demento, because then we we decided to put it on our first CD, and because it was it, it, it's amazing because the the fandom of that sketch just grew and grew and grew. Um, we would just keep getting feedback after feedback after feedback on it, and then. Each time we'd get a lot of feedback, we'd take it to the next level. We'd record it for CBC. We'd put it on the CD. We'd start putting it. We would actually do it live, and it actually worked really well live, which, you know, that's awesome. surprised me, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, one of the <laughs> – it just reinforces the rule about comedy is nobody knows anything. Yeah, yeah. It's, the audience laughs. <laughs> uh, really, that's what it is. So, and then, yeah, and then Demento got it, and then I was even amazed that it was, you know, it was outperforming fish heads. That's oh. crazy. That's insane. 
Yeah. Uh, and then I still have the, the CD, the Best of Demento CD that they that they sent us. Um, and it's still got the shrink wrap on it because it's got that sticker that says featuring Bulbous Buffon. Amazing. Yeah. And I, I have not been able to bring myself to open it. I, um, that I, I, I got another copy of it so that I could have one that I could open and listen to <laughs> to keep that one in its plastic <laughs> just as it was. Yeah. See, you are a nerd. There's no doubt God, when I hear something God. like that. Oh my God. You can't. Yeah. You I, can't. You, you can't see the model Klingon bird of prey behind me right now. Oh. But, yeah. That. See, now I, I wish I still had mine because uh, then we could compare. <laughs> Yours is probably better because I never bothered to paint mine, and I'm sure it fell apart at some oh, point. Oh, yeah, mine came ready-made. It, Ooh, it was, okay. you know, cheated that way, yeah. I also like about that sketch that it is uniquely Canadian. Uh, I mean, accents are unavoidable. You're going to sound Canadian, but that was part yeah. of the charm of it. But also, I, I'm going to... I'm going to go out on a limb and say I don't think I've ever heard an American use the word muckluck. Maybe, maybe, possibly. But I do think it's, it's a, you know, it's, I don't know, yeah. there's something about that that it it's, made it stand out. Yeah, it's a, it's an Inuit word, I believe. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, the, we do, you do actually can go into into a store in Canada and say, I'm looking for a pair of mucklucks, and they'll know what you mean. For sure, yeah. Um, That's what I, I assume. I don't know I if you could that. do that in the mall in the U.S. Absolutely um, not. I, I <laughs> You know, and I knew, the weird thing is, I knew what it was when you said it in the sketch, but then I'm like, I've never heard anybody say it. How do I know what that is? So again, I don't yeah. know. There's some weird Canadian influence that happened before that that told me what that was but i that's part Winter of clothing is a huge thing for us we have uh we have long and tough winters mm-hmm. and we are well versed in all of the things that keep you warm yeah <laughs> that's where it comes from <laughs> I, I that again that ends up being part of the charm at least to americans and i you always yeah you know i, I who knows i mean we're we're weird we we like to absorb these things in in strange ways do you you know, did you ever... Well, you okay. know, you talk about the charm. Yeah. You talk about the charm of the accents. It's fascinating because I spend, as an actor, because I'm also an actor, and I, I, I go out and audition for stuff, and, and, and there's a lot of American TV and movies that shoot sure. in Montreal. And I spend so much time and effort into losing the Canadian accent. <laughs> and you can't go in and audition for one of those things if you're like, hey, let's go out and about. Sorry about that. You know, you can't. You can't do that. They'll be like, okay, thank you. Uh, and it's so bizarre because somebody, a lot of people do talk about it as a very unique thing, but uh, the first thing you learn as a Canadian actor is lose it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I get that. I mean, uh, this, uh, this is, uh, I don't know that I'd lose it. No, I would actually. I, if, uh, if I still have my upstate New York accent, there's no way I'd be working. So it's yeah, not. No, they don't. I get it. They hate regional accents, even even when even from within the U.S. They they want everybody to sound like announcers on CNN. One hundred percent. That's absolutely true. Did you ever? Okay, and I have to ask this every time I have a Canadian guest. Was there ever doing the work you did on in radio, etc. Canadian running into Canadian content issues or working around Canadian content? I'm fascinated by it because we don't have it here, obviously. But. No, no, and you don't even have American content. No, we it don't. Be redundant because, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we actually have rules here, um, and they still stick. And even Netflix in Canada still follows these rules, wow. which is thirty percent Canadian content. Holy shit! Yeah, and uh, and Netflix, they technically, I'm not even sure that they have to. I don't know if they even contact it, it qualify as a broadcaster, but right. 
to play it safe, they do. So, uh, yeah, and that was a big thing on my college radio show is we had to get, I always had to get 30% Canadian content in. And uh, so, yeah, and you, you, you'd have to put it down in the log books and all that. And, oh, my God. And they, they actually would pay attention even to like rinky-dink college radio stations. They would actually pay attention to if you weren't playing enough Canadian content. Now, on the other hand, uh, you know, it, it, it was a boon for our industry because we were just buried with American, uh, our radio was just buried with American artists. Sure. And, and a lot of it's great. Um, so, you know, we wouldn't, that's how we got uh, the tragically hip and mm-hmm. hard and <laughs> there's uh, Brian Adams. There's good and Celine Dion. There's good and bad to that. <laughs> I uh, love it. Yeah, it's, again, it's it's one of the things that fascinates the crap out of me. I, I love hearing stories about it, even when people don't run into it. It is just, it's part of everyday life, and therefore is going to, it's got to it probably inform how you do everything in some small way, even if you don't realize it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I love that so much. Um for okay, so let's 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 hop back to Monty Python just for a minute. So we, sure, we've gone yeah, over I, your I, favorite sketches. Yeah. Um, where did you go after this album? Was it just a natural like uh, I'll just keep watching the shows when the movies come out? I'll get those. Did you get more albums? The Had albums you... came after the show. The, the albums came after you've seen all the episodes. For me, anyways, that was what it was. Mm-hmm. It was you've seen all the episodes, and then discovering that oh wait, there's more right. <laughs> on the albums. And I got to say, I didn't really own a lot of them, but I kept up with them. And I think their their marketing was was brilliant too. I gotta say, uh, you had the three sided album. Then there was another album that I saw in the store um, that a friend of mine bought just for the cover because it has it was um, the cover of it was uh, of a Herbert von Karajan conducts the Berlin Philharmonic Beethoven's Number no. Three and and then <laughs> this big crayon X'd out X'd out X'd out X'd mm. out and then another Monty Python album written across it. That was brilliant. There was also the instant record collection that would fold out into a cardboard uh, and and that into a cardboard out record collection. And then you could go through and read every single title of all of these albums. And that's hours of writing. I mean, right. (laughs) To get get like 30 good, funny album titles, you know, um, you know, and the more my brain hurts by the moron tabernacle choir, which I thought was brilliant (laughs) at the at the time it is still um so yeah i mean that's that's what really attracted me to the albums was they were so good at at not just because they were python but they got your attention and they were still you know even their last album was called monty python's contractual obligation which it was right they didn't want to do any more albums and 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 the record company looked at the contract and said well wait you owe us one more Mm-hmm. And so they did it, and they titled it exactly that. <laughs> so they were just brilliant in the way that they sold these things. Yeah, I, I, I yeah. There's not. I love this sort of implied laziness about for about that. You know, just like you said, crossed out title, and it just it looks like it's a bunch of bullshit. But like they went through, they they searched for art. You know, you know, they put so much time into it. It's so loving, but to yeah, also make it look mention- like it's, yeah. It wasn't even, I, I think I saw this in a documentary somewhere, it wasn't even an actual album. Somebody went and designed a classical music album cover that looked like it would be a real thing, just so that they could put X's through it. So the whole thing was 
was designed to be that. It's beautiful. It's, it's amazing. That's art. I mean, that's that's the art of of a good sketch comedy album. And uh, you know, again, I I do sometimes sound like just an old man when I talk about these things that I wish we could still do. But it's just because it's so interactive, so heavily interactive that that's the one thing I miss is uh, you know this kind of personal involvement with the thing that you just bought. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, now you can. The, their whole library is on Spotify. You can do just right. a couple of clicks and you're listening to it, which is great, but you kind of miss some of the experience of it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, or you, you can get it on iTunes and it downloads in 10 seconds. But you, you, all that album packaging stuff, it's, you know, a little tiny graphic on your on your phone. Mm-hmm. You know? have, yeah. have any of you in the group uh, had opportunities to meet or work with any of the guys from Monty Python? Um, I, geez, no, I, let's see, uh, they, a lot of them played at the Just for Last Festival here in Montreal. Sure. Um, I didn't get to see them. Um, Graham Chapman, I almost talked to, he played one of the early ones and it, it was, it's one of the biggest regrets of my life. Cause he was, there was this party afterwards and I think it was the very first festival we ever played in. Mm-hmm. And, um, there was this big party uh, afterwards, and it that festival then and now was largely dominated by Americans. And Graham Chapman clearly didn't know anybody there. You'd have the occasional yeah. comic would come over and say, "Ah, oh, it's great, great to meet you," and then they go away. And <laughs> just kind of standing, it was just sort of this weird <laughs> wallflower at this party that you know every once in a while someone would come over and shake his hand and then go away because he didn't really know anybody. And I was very young and I was very shy, and I he was standing there, and I never got the guts to get oh. together and talk to him. And you know what? This is the horrible part: is he within a year he had died yeah. after that. Yeah. I mean, what nah. are you gonna, what are you gonna do? Like, it's that's yeah. The thing is, yeah. also, if you know that you're gonna make an ass of yourself, you probably did yourself a favor. It's so it's so hard to know. Oh, I know, <laughs> I know, and I and I had had a couple of bad experiences approaching the other. Comics. Oh no, Cause, and some of those, and yeah, and some of those American guys. I'm not gonna name names, but mm-hmm. uh, um, yeah. Uh, some of those American guys are, he was on homicide. Um, some of those American guys are really arrogant. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I, that's not, I'm in no way surprised to hear that uh, at all. But yeah, it's hard. I mean, that's, you know, I've, yeah. I, I, I sometimes give people what I think for some people is bad advice. And like, I actually don't mind meeting your heroes. I've yet to have a bad experience, but who knows that could, because most of the time they're on microphone and they know they're being recorded. Who knows? Yeah. You know, it's hard. It's very difficult. Yeah. 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 And when they don't know you and you're just some, you know, yeah. Yeah. It can be tough. It can be very tough, but, uh, you know what? Hey, you were, you were, did, did you physically see him in person though? Yeah, I saw his show too. That's that's see that's he, he hosted amazing. A, he hosted a show and he did he did one of the most wonderful things I've ever seen. I don't know where it came from, but it was just and he was just he was basically he you know he did uh, like ten minutes at the beginning. He was introducing acts the whole show, okay, kind of thing. And he'd do the occasional sketch or something. And at one point, he came up between acts and he had this plastic shopping bag. And he just stood there and he said, and now it's time to throw the fish. And he reached into the bag and he had actual fish, dead fish, that he just chucked into the audience. Oh, my God. Just, like he must have chucked like 10 of them into the audience. And people were, were variously laughing or freaked out or like, get that thing away from me. Um, or yay, free fish. You know, 
it was really, and I thought that was one of the most brilliant things I've ever seen a, a comic do because it was just so simple. Oh, that's see, that's brilliant. But at the very least, like a you know, who cares? You didn't get to meet him, but you got to see him live and do something fucking phenomenal. That's so yeah, good. and something that doesn't exist on tape anywhere that I know of. Oh right, yeah, good call, good call. Yeah, yeah that's a, that's a solid memory to have of <laughs> of the first we lost. I mean, oh, that's amazing. Yeah. All right, so here's what I want to do is I, I always like towards the end of the show, I like to have be, I, by the way, I could talk to you for hours, but I don't want to keep you forever. So um, that's all right. This, uh, I have Halloween decorations to put up. Well, so, see, there you, you know. go. I mean, what are you going <laughs> to do? Um, yeah. If you're going to condense why to listen to the Monty Python matching tie and handkerchief in, into a few sentences, if so, let's say somebody doesn't know Monty Python, maybe, or they've never heard one of their albums, why give this one a listen? Uh boy all i can think of is it's really good it's really funny mm-hmm. uh, um it's some of the most innovative comedy that you'll ever hear and it it's one of the rare pieces of comedy that gets better with multiple listenings and that me listening to it i don't know what is it now 30 40 years since the first time i heard it i was listening to it in the car this morning and i was still laughing out loud at it it's perfect it's perfect. Any yeah. anything that ages as well as a as a cheese, uh, you know, it's it's worth listening to. And I I particularly love this one. I'm glad we got to talk about it again. Um, okay, this is going to come out in a few weeks. Uh, a few weeks. Okay. I can't give you an exact date because I'm an idiot. But let, actually, That's all right. I could be a lie. You might actually come out next. I can't remember. But uh, let's presume a week or two. Uh, where where can people find you? What do you want to promote? Et cetera, et cetera. Uh, well, I don't, I mean, unless you want to come see some live shows in Montreal, uh, <laughs> I'm appearing at the Montreal Improv Festival next week. Okay. Uh, so if anybody happens to be in town and has a time machine, cause it'll be over by then, <laughs> uh, go see those cause they're great shows. Uh, well, there's my, there's my website, terrencebowman.com. There's the vestibules.com. Go to that for sure. Because mm-hmm. Uh, if you're a fan or you want to discover us, we're there. There's also Vestibule's Facebook page. November 26th, the 30th anniversary of the first Vestibule's airing, our very first show will be going up on YouTube. That's a plan that I had, and it's one that I'm committed to now because I've said it. Uh-huh. I love it. That's so good. Yeah. Uh, have you ever – I haven't found them, so I'm assuming no. Have you ever released an album on vinyl? No. Damn it. No. It was it, it. We thought about doing it after the fact. Now that vinyl's big, but sure. uh, it was. And even putting out, it, it was expensive to do that back in the day. Mm-hmm. I, I I know some bands who who went bankrupt doing that because oh, it, it was expensive to do. Um, and actually, even just putting out a CD in 1994 was sure a monumental process. Hard to believe. Yeah. Uh, even when we did our second one in 2002, it was way easier. And even that's 10 times more complicated than it would be today. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But uh, no, we didn't do we didn't do vinyl. We were we were too late for that. And it's a thought, though. It's a thought because it absolutely is back in a big way. Yeah. No, it's huge. And I, I love the Every once in a while, you'll get a new vinyl album that people have actually taken the time to not just slap together. I mean, it's fine. If you want to just make a sleeve, great. But, like, there's some great stuff. Like, the new the Bob's Burgers music album is phenomenal. It's like a... Yeah. It's I've heard that on Spotify. It's, it's, uh, it's the, the, a great album. Yeah. That... I, I can't stop listening to uh, where they do a combination musical of Die Hard and Working Girl. 
<laughs> it's like that's another thing you want to talk contemporary stuff that's another thing that survives multiple listenings i saw the episode when it aired mm-hmm. and i can listen to that song over and over again it's, it's brilliant and they did a really good job putting together not just the album but the if you get the the big box set that comes with this ridiculous amount of extra shit uh, it's, oh, really? okay. it, it's really something. involved it's not something i could have afforded it's something i you know lucked into because i interviewed the creator of the show but ah. it's phenomenal it's a really good I'll consider it for my christmas list yeah no it's good it's yeah. real good um well thank you so so much for doing the show oh um, thank you for having me this was fun i'd love to have you back either by skype or if you happen to find yourself down down in la for some reason in which case not I'm as sorry. much these days used to go down i used to be down there a lot but uh not as much anymore but if it ever happens i will let you know all right uh well again thank you for being here you guys thank you so much for listening uh and uh I'm trying to think. You know what, guys? Go to StolenDress.com slash Celery Sound. That's my tiny sketch comedy record label that is barely a record label, but you know what? I've got some of my own stuff on there, so you guys go there. Check that out. That's I rarely promote anything, so go there. Um, that's about it. Thank you guys for listening, and as always, have a good thing. <laughs> Comedy on Vinyl is a production of Stolen Dress Entertainment. It is produced by Mike Warden and is hosted and edited by Jason Klom. Our theme song was composed and performed by Richard Levinson. Please visit StolenDress.com to listen to our other podcasts, read our blogs, read our tweets, watch our videos, and read our books. Please subscribe on iTunes, and if you like us, give us a five-star rating and a nice review. You can find us on Facebook.com slash Comedy on Vinyl, Twitter at Comedy on Vinyl, and find everything else at ComedyOnVinyl.com. A major portion of Comedy on Vinyl has been underwritten by Stand Up Records. Please visit StandUpRecords.com for all your comedy needs and tune into the new Stand Up channel available on the Roku, where you can also find select episodes of this podcast. 